Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the VOM Squad, an occasional podcast from the Voices of Monterey Bay Podcasting Network. My name is Joe Livernoise, and this is the second and final podcast in what I call Monterey Rocks a recap of a 25-week series I wrote for Voices of Monterey Bay. Monterey Rocks described the very best rock and roll performances ever staged on the Central Coast. So if it was up to me, Los Lobos would be my number one pick. That's if it was up to me, but I figured that I had a larger duty to Monterey Bay Area to be honest about it, and I had to show restraint. Los Lobos is my favorite band, but I only listed them as the number five pick on my list. And this particular show was not vintage, classic Los Lobos. They stumbled a bit, but it was just awesome. And it was at the Santa Cruz Fairgrounds in Watsonville on September 3rd. 13th, 1987, which was a couple of months, a couple of weeks after the La Bamba film about Richie Valens was released and Los Lobos had done the music for that movie. And not only that, but the Valenzuela family, Richie Valens' family, mostly was living, still living in Watsonville. And so for Los Lobos to come to the Santa Cruz Fairgrounds, not as a special show, they showed up during the fair. It was dusty, it was hot, it was in the rodeo arena sort of stands that they got there and the the place was packed full of people they did their show and like i said they sort of stumbled through a lot of it but near the end they brought up the valenzuela family and they all showed up every one of them including richie's brother real brother who's betrayed i can't remember his name in the film but he was one of the great protagonists in that movie and then richie valens mother was there and Richie Valens' mother would, would have died like a couple of weeks after that. And she wasn't all there, but somebody handed her the mic and she just babbled a bunch of stuff, happy stuff into the mic and people cheered and it was lovely and it was beautiful. And so then Los Lobos just jumped into their version of La Bamba and just burned the place down. Really nice. Almost as nice as the Santana concert (laughs) a couple years later. We probably all remember, if we've been around for a while, the the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989, October of 1989. And it disrupted a lot of lives. Killed some people, knocked knocked buildings down. So in an effort to help, Bill Graham of Bill Graham Presents, the great uh, music promoter in the San Francisco, set up a series of festival-like concerts at three different locations, including the Cow Palace in San Francisco, a place in Oakland, and then Watsonville High School football field, which, and the headliner at that Watsonville show was Santana. And this wasn't the new touchy-feely Santana. This was the hard rockin' Santana doing all their greatest hits. It was a beautiful show. Not only that, to sweeten the deal for a guy like me, who's a huge Los Lobos fan, is Los Lobos opened for Santana that day. So it was back-to-back Los Lobos and Santana in Watsonville at the high school. It doesn't get much more gritty than that. It was it was a sweet day. But tickets were only $10.
Jimi Hendrix and The Who were two of the four acts from the Monterey Pop Festival that I decided to include in um, the top 25 performances. And Jimi Hendrix was my number one pick because of course. I mean, what else are you going to do? The Who was a little further down, and I, I love The Who. The Who is great. But the funny story about that, and, you know, there's a lot has been written about Monterey Pop. Everybody's seen the movie. A lot of people have seen the movie. Not everyone has seen the movie. But if you've seen the movie, you get a good sense of what the, the vibe was like there, and it was all sweet and groovy. And, and then The Who and then Jimi Hendrix were going to close the show on Sunday. So they're in the back behind the stage jockeying for position. Who goes first? Because every, both Jimi Hendrix and The Who wanted to go first because they both knew each other's act and they both knew that they were going to go out there and destroy their equipment. So they knew that whoever followed the other would look like a bunch of copycats. Jimi Hendrix didn't want to be known for smashing his equipment right after The Who did and vice versa. So they were going back and forth about it. They were actually talking about it. And people had to intervene because it got a little heated. So finally, it was agreed that The Who would go on first. So The Who got up there and did their act smash their equipment. Pete Townshend's like slamming his guitar onto the stage. It's a mess, smoke everywhere, a lot of din. I mean, it's just nasty noise. Stage clears, they bring out the Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead just botched it. I mean, they were just horrible and every, you know, it, it was after watching The Who and then they bring out the Grateful Dead. So then they finally got the Grateful Dead off the stage and they brought up Jimi Hendrix. So the Who's sitting back there thinking, well, we smashed our equipment. Now, if he smashes his equipment, he's going to look like a damn copycat. So what Jimi Hendrix does is he lights fire to his guitar. Take that, The Who, allegedly. If you go up in the stage of the Monterey Fairgrounds, there's still supposedly scorch marks from Jimi Hendrix's burning guitar. But that's been debated because there is indeed a scorch mark, but there's people who have triangulated the scene because there's so much interest in this that they said that can't possibly be where he lit his guitar on fire. Someone else did that and is claiming that it's Jimi Hendrix's scorch mark. So I don't know. I don't know what's true. <laughs> The Beach Boys <laughs> were originally scheduled to do the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. In fact, Brian Wilson, Mr. Everything at the Beach Boys, was on the Monterey Pop Festival advisory board. So as he was moving along, he was looking at the acts that had been scheduled. So he went back to his band and said, do we really want to do this? We got this nice California groove thing going and we have our fans who appreciate that. I'm not sure that we really fit in with these more hardcore bands like Jimi Hendrix and The Who and the Mamas and the Papas. Now this is debated. You know, and, and all this stuff, there's literature, there's hardcore studies that have been done about the history of the Beach Boys and the history of, you know, the Monterey Pop Festival. And, and a lot of this stuff is still being debated. So 
The evidence is, is that Brian Wilson was on the advisory board. The evidence shows that the early Monterey Pop Festival promotional posters will show The Who, Jimi Hendrix, The Beach Boys, The Grateful Dead. The Beach Boys are on those posters. Suddenly, without any announcement, they just disappear. And so the question is, were they a bit intimidated to have to hold their own, you know, with that sort of talent? But I, I think they could have, but I don't think they were real comfortable in that environment. I don't know if it was the right call or not. The Mamas and the Papas, Ravi Shankar, you know, they weren't hardcore rock and roll people either. So, I mean, that was sort of the groove at the Monterey Pop Festival at the time was that everybody was welcome. Everybody was appreciated. For a California band, they really never played Central Coast hardly at all. And I can't remember the year. I have it in my story. But they did come to Laguna Seca, and they played two concerts there. And I think they came back the next year, too. But they were awesome. And they were just rock and roll. Had, you know, kind of a good time band, and everybody appreciated them. And it was good. It was great. Uh, and not only that, but Al Hardeen does live in Big Sur. And occasionally he will come down off his mountain and do uh, local concerts, which I really strongly considered including some of his concerts because they've been sublime. And he's a great musician, and he's a lot of fun, and he's a local guy. But I decided if I'm going to do the Beach Boy thing, I'm going to to do this the show that they didn't do So back in 1977, Neil Young decided he was going to move into Santa Cruz and become part of the scene. He moved into this house near downtown. He wanted to sort of blend in. He didn't. He was a huge star, obviously, in 1977, but he felt safe in Santa Cruz. He felt safe in the environment and felt safe that there was not going to be a lot of fanboy sort of activity around him, you know, that, that happens with, with celebrities like Neil Young. And it was true for the most part. And he wanted to sort of just kind of blend in. So he'd show up at clubs with his guitar and asked the band, hey, can I sit in? And you can imagine that scene. It's like, what the sh**? Neil Young wants to play? Yeah, sure. And so they formed a band, the local guys with Neil Young. And um, they, they called their band The Ducks. And the trouble was Young was forbidden by contract, his recording contract, from touring anywhere outside Santa Cruz without Crazy Horse. So the Ducks were pretty much limited to clubs within the city of Santa Cruz. And they were playing the back of restaurants. They were playing the VFW Hall, the Grange Hall. And it was all in the download. It was all promoted by word of mouth, purposely, because they just didn't want huge crowds. He, he wanted it that way. The local fan base was rabid. I mean, they, you know, they were following this, this band best they could word of mouth. They'd also invaded all the outdoor hunting stores and bought up all the duck whistles. And so when, before every show, all the fans were out <laughs> wherever they were blowing duck whistles. As opposed to cheering, applauding, clapping, they would blow their 
duck whistles. So little by little, I think it was the local weekly newspaper, the hip newspaper in Santa Cruz. I don't know what it was. Might have been the Good Times. Might have been another one. Sort of leaked the fact that Neil Young was playing locally at these different places, and word started spreading outside of Santa Cruz, and people started showing up from Canada and God knows where else to see Neil Young and like a bunch of yahoos screaming out Cinnamon Girl! Well he wasn't there to play Cinnamon Girl and he made sure everybody knew it. So finally after 22 shows over a course of just a couple of months the band broke up. It wasn't so much that they broke up it said that Neil Young just stopped showing up. So so that was that. This leads me to my next Neil Young story, and this was 10 years later on November 6, 1987. So whenever Neil Young and his band would launch a tour, before they launched the tour, they would show up out of the blue at a moment's notice at places like Santa Cruz Civic or The Catalyst or wherever they could find a venue and just rehearse their show before a live crowd. And again, last minute, nobody knew about it. It was all word of mouth. People would just kind of show up. And the expectation is that you're just going to show up and listen to a rehearsal and they're testing their music and they would take a break and then they would come back and they would do the same show over again and that was the deal in november of 1987 neil young showed up with his new band it was a band that he called the blue notes because he had just he had recorded a blue notes album is all blues sort of music with these great blues musicians and so they were about to launch a tour and they were you know they checked in with all the usual spots in Santa Cruz and were told that they weren't available the the owner of the club small club in Salinas gets a call from an agent saying hey you know Neil Young wants to play you can't tell anybody and the guy's going well I have disco night that night and then he's thinking well wait a minute do I want to piss off my disco fans or do I want to have Neil Young in my club so obviously he opted for that but he couldn't promote it that was the thing so he might actually lose money on this thing but word got out that afternoon and so the place was jam-packed full of people but again Salinas we're talking about Salinas hosting Neil Young it happened to be on November 6th so that's how I spent my 34th birthday watching Neil Young at at this little club it was fun but the the yahoos in Salinas are like yahoos everywhere in the world they're standing out front He's, he's testing all his blue note material, but all these other guys, uh, all the audience members are standing there screaming out, Cinnamon Girl! They want to hear Cinnamon Girl! And this was going on and on and on all night. So at one point, Neil Young stops what he's doing. He very deliberately returns his guitar to his guitar stand. He deliberately walks back to the microphone. He leans into it and he says, What do I look like? A f-ing jukebox? And it just quieted the crowd. Nobody screamed out their favorite Neil Young song after that. He went back, got his guitar, and and started all over again. To me, that's the classic Neil Young moment. With pop 
Pavarotti, I broke all the rules that I had established for myself because I I told myself that I was going to stick to rock and roll. And, you know, I made, I bent the rules a little bit with John Lee Hooker. I bent the rules a little bit with, I included Robbie Shankar on the list too. But I thought I was really going over the top with when I selected Pavarotti. The more I thought about it, the more I, the more I thought, you know what? There was really no bigger rock star than Pavarotti in the world. I mean, you know, he's kind of like Bono or Ringo Starr. So I included Luciano Pavarotti on my list. One of the three tenors, the man with the golden voice. He's referred to as what? He's referred to as the king of the high seas. And then the more research I did, I found out that, yeah, he would be sort of considered a rock star. I mean, he toured with Elton John. He toured with Sting. He toured with Bono. So yeah, he he knew the rock arena. But in 1991, March 17th, 1991, March 17th, that being St. Patrick's Day, Tibor Rudis was an acclaimed music promoter of operatic sort of music, symphony music and classical music. He moved his offices to Pacific Grove, and became sort of enmeshed in the community here and became pretty well known around here. And he knew the three tenors. The three tenors included Pavarotti, Jose Carreras, and Placido Domingo. Pavarotti was the king of the high seas. Tibor Rudas brought Pavarotti to Pebble Beach as a benefit. I can't remember what the benefit was for, but the concert was set up at the Stevenson School's football field. Huge tent, and it was Good thing there was a tent there because it rained cats and dogs that day. So you saw the upper crust stomping through the rain and the mud and their gowns and their tuxedos. So it was their own little Woodstock moment. Yeah, the problem the problem with doing um, the Monterey Pop, a lot of that, well, I, I, and I knew this when I was writing it, is that um, people are so familiar with it. I mean, if you if you cared about it, you know everything there is to know about it. It's sort of bred into us all these years. I mean, if you're a if you're a boomer, you know you're sort of raised on this stuff, and so you kind of you kind of knew it. Um, so, and I knew that when I started writing this and trying to find some different angle to it or something that I'd never heard of before. For instance, this little you know back and forth with The Who and Jimi Hendrix. I, I'd never heard that before, but it's, it's a cool little insight. The Janis Joplin thing everybody knew about is that she had shown up one day to do her set with Big Brother and the Holding Company, and D.A. Pennebaker, the documentarian who was capturing the entire show, wasn't there to catch Janis Joplin and apparently she just like killed it and she was like Janis Joplin had been around for a while she'd been in San Francisco for a while but she was kind of known as being erratic and and not on her game but she showed up at at Monterey and she was Janis Joplin and so they had to go back to her and say would you mind coming out again the next day and 
doing it all over again. And she's thinking, hell yeah. I mean, that's that's great because I'll be on film. And where were they yesterday? God damn it. So she, um, she comes out and if you've never seen that documentary, you have to watch Janis Joplin do ball and chain. The crowd shots are the best. They, they keep showing mama Cass who is just sit there. She looks like she's stunned and, and she keeps mouthing the words. Wow. Wow. It was, it's, it's great. I mean, it's just a great performance. It's all time best. Lou Adler was one of the producers of the Monterey Pop Festival, and he subsequently became a real big shot in the music industry. And if he says that the Janis Joplin performance was one of the greatest performances he'd ever seen. If he says that, who are we to argue? Hey, Bomb Squad listeners, this is Noah from AMP, the producer of This Voices podcast. Thank you for listening to the final episode of Monterey Rocks, the Top 25. You've been listening to The Bomb Squad, a Voices podcast of the Voices of Monterey Bay podcasting network in conjunction with Access Media Productions in Monterey County. Until next time.